Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers, wherever you are. To anyone new, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. All I ask is that after listening to the video, if you enjoyed it or learned something, that you please hit the like button and consider subscribing. Now let me get right to what I want to share. Inside Edition recently published an article in which they rightly pointed out that the Moscow Police Department's initial information regarding the behaviors of the two surviving roommates, Dylan M. and Bethany F., during the hours the crime occurred at 1122 King Road on November 13, 2022, was different from what was said in the probable cause affidavit. Back on November 20th of 2022, in their announcement regarding the crime, the Moscow Police Department stated that the two surviving roommates, Dylan and Bethany, were asleep at the time of the massacre at 1122 King Road. But in the affidavit, Officer Payne noted that Dylan M. was not only not asleep, but she also witnessed the perpetrator coming down the hallway toward her and then exiting the home. Why are the two documents saying opposite things about Dylan M. on the night of the crime? Had the Moscow Police Department not fully interrogated Dylan when they published that November 20th case update? Did Dylan M. tell them two different stories? Or did the police deliberately put out false information in that November 20th update in order to protect their one and only eyewitness, Dylan M.? I think the latter scenario is the right answer. Brian Koberger wasn't even on the cops' radar on November 20th, so perhaps they were afraid the perpetrator might go looking for Dylan M., if he were to find out that there was an eyewitness who could identify, at the very least, his bushy eyebrows, distinctive eyes, his height, build, and maybe even his voice. Dylan M. did say she heard a male saying something akin to, It's okay, I'm going to help you, to poor Zana Kornodal. And by the way, I learned from retired detective Bill Cannon of Police Off the Cuff that investigators can do voice lineups to see if a victim can pick out the perpetrator's voice. Cannon also said that if he were working this case, he would do a lineup to see if Dylan M. could identify the perpetrator by his eyes, build, height, etc. It makes you wonder if the Moscow Police Department has done this. Dylan M. could be behind one of those glass walls where she can see out, but the guys in the lineup cannot see in, so she wouldn't even have to be up close and personal with Brian Koberger. Back to the Inside Edition article. The article also stated that a source told them that the two surviving roommates called victim Ethan Chapin's two siblings, who also attended the University of Idaho, before anyone 
at the King Road residence dialed 911 on November 13th, the day of the crime. Ethan's mother, Stacy Chapin, noted last week on her Facebook in a lengthy post about Ethan's siblings, Hunter and Maisie, returning to the university to pick up their studies that two of her family's vehicles were with Brian Koberger's legal defense team. Here is what Stacy Chapin wrote, word for word. For an update, anything we slash Ethan had is now frozen with the defense. For us, it involves two vehicles, Ethan's belongings, and a nice set of golf clubs, end quote. Apparently, when the first three officers to arrive at 1122 King Road on November 13th realized that the house and the property were crime scenes, they seized all the vehicles that were in the driveway. But that only meant that they did not allow anyone to drive any of those vehicles off the property. I say this because we know that the investigators did not actually remove any of the five vehicles that were in the driveway on the morning of the crime until December 1st, a good 17 days post the crime. This was something that many retired police officers on YouTube criticized, including Duty Ron and Bill Cannon of Police Off the Cuff. They all said those vehicles should have been processed by crime scene analysts in a secure location away from the crime scene early on. I think we can already see where Koberger's defense team is going to go with this. That house was a crime scene the minute the perpetrator stepped into it. With no one dialing 911 after the masked man exited the sliding glass doors and the crime scene sitting as is, for eight more hours until around 11 a.m. Sunday morning, when the two surviving roommates reportedly woke up and stepped out of their bedrooms, the crime scene was vulnerable to contamination. The surviving roommates must not have recognized the strong odor of blood that one of the three first responding officers, Officer Shane Gunderson, told Airmail magazine that he sniffed the moment he stepped inside the King Road residence that Sunday. But Dylan M. and Bethany F. had to have seen or noticed that something was off because they called some of their friends over before dialing 911. Among those friends were Ethan Chapin's two siblings, Hunter and Maisie, Perhaps the house was too quiet that Sunday morning. Perhaps Dylan and Bethany expected their roommates and Ethan to come bounding out of their bedrooms by 11 a.m. And when they didn't, maybe they got worried. Perhaps they saw some blood. I'm still wondering why Dylan M., who must have recalled seeing a masked man clad in black clothing, exiting the house earlier that morning, around 4.18 a.m., didn't think a call to 911 was in order at this point. I say this not to shame or blame her. 
we don't know what she was thinking or how she processed the sight of this masked man. It's just that this remains a major mystery of this case. The probable cause affidavit has a lot of gaps in it, of course, as it should. The police are not required to lay all their evidentiary cards on the table at this point. One important detail the affidavit left out is the state of the victim's bedroom doors that morning when Dylan and Bethany awoke and got up, and when the first three police officers arrived after the 911 call that came in at 11.58 a.m. The probable cause document written by Officer Brett Payne only states that as he approached Zana Kernodal's bedroom, he could see a body that was later identified as Kernodal's on the floor, but Officer Payne didn't arrive to the King Road residence until 4 p.m. on Sunday, a good four hours after the initial responding officers turned up there after that 1158 911 call. Officer Payne's description of what he saw up on the third floor in Maddie Mogan's bedroom also doesn't say if her bedroom door was open or not. All Officer Payne wrote is this. I entered this bedroom. I could see two females in the single bed in the room. End quote. The only clues we the public have as to whether the victim's bedroom doors at 1122 King Road were open on the morning of Sunday, November 13th, are in an article written about the Moscow case in Airmail magazine. According to the article, the three police officers who first responded to the King Road residence after that 911 call proceeded with haste to the second floor. The article says, and I quote, they opened the bedroom door to find two dead bodies, a male and a female, end quote. So that was Zana's bedroom, and inside were Zana and Ethan. The article goes on to say this about the third floor, and I quote, On the third floor, things got, if possible, worse. In one bedroom, lying in a single bed, were two inert women, Maddie Mogan and Kaylee Gonzalez, end quote. So, if we are to believe the information in this airmail article, then we know the victim's bedroom doors were closed when the first three officers arrived. But the article, like the probable cause affidavit, doesn't specify if the surviving roommates and their friends opened the victim's bedroom doors before the police arrived that morning or not. I really hope the roommates and their friends didn't open the bedroom doors, not only because the sights they would have seen would likely have traumatized them for a lifetime, but also because they very well could have contaminated those crime scene areas. One thing is certain. Brian Koberger's defense team is going to have a field day creating reasonable doubt thanks to, one, the eight-hour delay in the roommates dialing 911, and two, the surviving roommates having their friends come inside the house 
before they called 911 and before the police were invited inside. The defense will most assuredly also argue that someone could have planted the leather sheath that had Brian Koberger's DNA on it on Maddie Mogan's bed. I can already feel my stomach churning with anxiety over this, but I'm a little OCD, so that's kind of the normal state of my stomach. If Koberger is guilty of this crime, he is a dangerous predator who belongs behind bars or worse. I hate to think that the surviving roommate's behavior on Sunday could jeopardize the case against Koberger. But again, I'm not blaming them. They're young women. They had no idea. They don't know what blood smells like. They don't know what a guy with a mask and black clothing walking out the door was there for. Yes, it sounds scary to us, but we don't know how it came across to Dylan. Right now, with a gag order in place, the only people talking about the case in the media are a slew of retired FBI special agents and some savvy criminal profilers like Anne Burgess, who has worked extensively with the FBI on criminal profiling. Burgess said on an episode of Surviving the Survivor that whoever did in Ethan, Maddie, Kaylee, and Zana is the type of criminal who will no doubt do this again. Once Brian Koberger was arrested for the crime, Burgess, when asked if she thought he'd done this before, said no. But not all the experts agree on that point. Former special agent Jonathan Gilliam recently appeared on a two-episode Dr. Phil show, and he theorized that Koberger has likely done this before. But before I tell you what Gilliam said about that, let me remind you of what Gilliam said about victim Kaylee Gonzalez's father early on after the crime occurred. Take a listen. He is consistently making to the media. I'm just going to say it. It was leaked to me. I earned that. I paid for that funeral. I sent my daughter to college. Uh, she came back in a box. He went to the, when they had their, their service for, uh, for all the, the, the four slain and made jokes and talked about the lighting. Yeah. Mean, this individual is bothering me and many people very much. Mr. Gonzalez, he, he continues to push out their details about this crime that nobody really knows about, uh, that there was a different types of attacks and ferocity amongst the different victims. The only person that said that is this same individual. And, uh, and, and the way that he talks about how his daughter and the other girl that was with her were sleeping in the same bed. That, that information was not released until he said it. William appeared to basically be implicating Kaylee's own father in the crime. It wasn't a very good look for Gilliam, so it's kind of surprising that Dr. Phil had him on the show, but then again, a lot of people don't have a lot of respect for Dr. Phil. Note that I'm going to use the terminology, do someone in, in place of the word that rhymes with pill but starts with a K. Okay, here goes. Gilliam said, I think he's done in people before, most likely. Not for people, but I think he's probably stalked and potentially done in 
females before, end quote. Gilliam also stated that he believes the investigators will find the weapon used in the crime. I can't name the weapon because YouTube will penalize me for that, so I'm going to say blank where that word belongs. Gilliam said, and I quote, I think they'll find that blank. I think the blank could potentially be found because I think, like the car and these things, I think these are part of his operational tools. It's no different than a go bag for me, end quote. So what Gilliam was suggesting there is that Koberger may have had what is commonly referred to as a blank kit. The word that rhymes with pill but starts with K belongs in the blank. Blank kit. And another guest on Dr. Phil's show, trial attorney Mercedes Colwyn, also feels the weapon used in the crime will be found. Colwyn also suggested that the leather sheath found on victim Maddie Mogan's bed may have been left there by the perpetrator on purpose as a calling card. Colwyn said, and I quote, It could be, I mean, it's almost as if, and we've seen this with other blanks, it's their calling card. I got this. Especially if you think you're smarter than everybody else. And he certainly... He had gloves, at least that's what's presumed, that he had gloves. He tried to cover himself, did something to dispose of the clothing, if he, in fact, is the blank. Then, of course, this is something that could have just been a calling card and left it there, end quote. So that quote was incredibly wordy and hard to follow, but basically she's saying that Koberger, if he is the perpetrator, did likely do things to cover up the crime, perhaps wearing gloves, perhaps wearing clothes that he later disposed of. So she's thinking maybe that leather sheath was a calling card for him. I find that hard to believe since his DNA is on it. It's a single source of DNA, and that DNA was found to belong to Brian Koberger thanks to a match of DNA from an item taken from the Koberger's family home in their garbage that matched Koberger's father to Koberger. Colwyn also had a hard time believing this was Koberger's first time doing something like this to human beings if he is indeed the perpetrator. Colwyn based this on the viciousness and brutality of the crime and what she described as, and I quote, the butchering of these four individuals, end quote. Retired Detective Chris McDonough of the interview room recently stated that you can bet investigators are researching any cold cases in the areas where Brian Koberger lived to see if they match up with Koberger's alleged modus operandi, or M.O., Time will likely reveal all the answers. At least, I hope so. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now, do me a favor. Smash that like button. Subscribe to my channel. It's a free way you can help me. And I'll see you next time.